Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. On this week's program, a focus on South America as we talk to Kevin Thomas of the Maquia Solidarity Network and he'll be discussing a groundbreaking agreement in Honduras between the labor movement and the country's largest employer, Russell Athletics, owned by Fruit of the Loom. Also, a discussion with Murray Klippenstein. Now, he is representing three Ecuadorians who are suing a Canadian mining company and the Toronto Stock Exchange over human rights abuses that occurred in Ecuador. Also, a conversation with Ben Paulus, a young university student from the Mohawk Six Nations in Ontario with a growing representation, and he'll be talking about an alternative conference he attended in Rome alongside the World Summit on Food Security. All that, plus the alert headlines, music is the weapon, and around the left in seven days. And now the alert headlines for the week of November 26th, 2009. On the eve of major UN climate change talks next month in Copenhagen, a national survey has found that more than three-quarters of Canadians feel embarrassed that this country has not been taking a leadership role on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The view that Canada is an international laggard when it comes to dealing with emissions blamed for global warming was felt across the country, even in oil-rich Alberta. The survey was compiled by Hogan & Associates, a Vancouver-based public relations firm. Six people are currently occupying Canadian Environment Minister Jim Prentice's office to demand the Canadian government push for climate justice at the upcoming climate treaty negotiations in Copenhagen. The activists occupying the office have refused to leave until the minister agrees to push for a just, ambitious and binding climate deal in Copenhagen that listens to scientific evidence and is led by those who are most directly impacted by the climate crisis. In Middle Eastern news, the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem is reporting that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has claimed almost 8,900 lives in the past two decades, the vast majority of them Palestinians. B'Tselem said Israeli forces killed nearly 7,400 Palestinians, including over 1,500 minors, both in Israel and the occupied territories during that period. Palestinians killed just under 1,500 Israelis, including 139 minors. 2009 has been the deadliest year for Palestinians in the past two decades. The Council of Canadians is sounding the alarm over recommendations to formalize and extend a water market system throughout the province of Alberta. The Alberta government has released a report containing recommendations to expand the market for water allocation transfers to the entire province and compel all users to participate in the market. The report also recommends removing much of the government oversight in approving transfer applications. Maud Barlow, national chairperson of the Council of Canadians, warns that the implementation of these recommendations would open the door to full private water markets which have wreaked havoc on the environment in countries like Australia and Chile. The Council of Canadians is calling for a national water policy that recognizes water as a human right and a public trust. The CIA built one of its secret European prisons inside an exclusive riding academy outside Vilnius, Lithuania.
Lithuanian government officials and a former U.S. intelligence official told reporters the CIA installed a concrete structure where it could use harsh tactics to interrogate suspected al-Qaeda terrorists where rich Lithuanians once rode show horses and sipped coffee at the cafe. Lithuania agreed to allow the CIA prison after President George, George W. Bush visited the country in 2002 and pledged support for Lithuania's efforts to join NATO. Investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill has revealed the private military firm Blackwater, now known as Z, is part of a covert program in Pakistan that includes planning the assassination and kidnapping of Taliban and al-Qaeda suspects. In the groundbreaking article in The Nation magazine, Blackwater, now known as Z, is also said to be involved in a previously undisclosed U.S. military campaign that has killed scores of people inside Pakistan. The article says the program has become become so secretive that top Obama administration and military officials have likely been unaware of its existence. Colombia says it will not allow recent tensions with Venezuela to escalate into violence after it accused Venezuelan troops of blowing up two footbridges that link the countries. Venezuela's vice president said the bridges were removed on the Venezuelan side because they were being used as illegal crossing, crossings for drug trafficking. But Colombia's foreign ministry said that the destruction of the bridges was an aggression against the civilian population and the frontier communities. Tensions have grown between the two countries after Bogotá Bogota granted the U.S. more access to its military bases. The U.S. says they are helping Colombia's war against drugs and leftist fighters. Venezuela's president, Hugo Chavez, recently told his armed forces to prepare for war, saying the U.S.-Colombia military pact could set the stage for a U.S. intervention. In other Latin American news... Hugo Chavez has called for the formation of a fifth internationale of left parties and social movements to confront the challenge posed by the global crisis of capitalism. The Venezuelan president made the announcement during an international conference of more than 50 left organizations from 31 countries held in this month. Representatives from a number of major parties in Latin America voiced their support for the proposal. Chavez said that a new internationale would have, no, would have to function without impositions and would have to respect diversity. China now deploys more peacekeeping personnel than any other member of the UN Security Council, with more than three-quarters of its deployment sent to Africa. A study by a Swedish think tank claims one of the main factors behind a recent surge in the number of China's peacekeepers is the country's desire to raise its international profile as a constructive and responsible power. China's engagement in UN peacekeeping provides an important and widening window of opportunity for the international community to engage with China more closely on global security issues, the report concludes. And those were the alert headlines for the week of November 26, 2009. And now, around the left in seven days for the week of November 26 to December 4th. In preparation for the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, the Olympic Resistance Network is hosting a weekend of workshops on the practical and important aspects of demonstrations and resistance. The workshops will inform participants of their rights as a protester and citizen, discuss anti-oppression skills and tactics, counter-surveillance strategies, and will provide an instruction to basic first aid. All workshops are free and will take place the weekend November 28th and 9th at the Center for Socialist Education in Vancouver. 
on November 30th, energy economist John Foster will present a rarely told story about Afghanistan. Plans for a natural gas pipeline to link Central and South Asia via Kandahar. Foster will explain the rivalry for control of Central Asia's oil and gas and will reveal how Afghanistan fits into this story. The lecture begins at 7 p.m. at Steelworkers Hall in Toronto. There is a suggested donation of $5 to $10. On December 2nd, meet at the corner of King Street and University Avenue in Toronto to demand justice for migrant workers and to protest recent changes to Canada's immigration system. Regulations recently introduced by the federal government are set to come into force on December 9th. The protest is Wednesday at 11 a.m. at the regional office of Jason, Jason Kenney, Minister of Immigration. Mark Thomas, professor of sociology at York University, will be launching his new book, Regulating Flexibility, at the Toronto Women's Bookstore on December 3rd. This book has been described as a timely analysis of employment standards legislation that calls for a new approach to the labor market regulation. The book launch also includes a panel discussion. The event begins at 7 p.m. The Canadian delegation for the Gaza Freedom March is hosting a fundraising event on December 4th in solidarity with the Gaza Freedom March. On December 31st, thousands of Palestinians will march from inside Gaza to the Israeli border to demand an end to the collective punishment of an entire people. The fundraising event for this march is held at Ryerson University and will feature Middle Eastern food and entertainment. Tickets are $40 for the general public and $20 for students. All proceeds will benefit the Gaza Freedom March. This evening of solidarity is held in the Student Center at Ryerson University at 7 p.m. And that was Around the Left in 7 Days for the week of November 26th to December 4th. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. Kevin Thomas of the Makia Solidarity Network, welcome to Alert Radio. Thanks. Now, you sent a blog to the Canadian Dimension website that talks about an unprecedented agreement signed November 14th between Russell Athletic and a union representing workers laid off at one of its plants in Honduras, a plant that was subsequently closed. Now, first off, tell us about Russell Athletic Company. Who owns it and how many workers do they employ in Honduras? Athletic is uh, owned by Fruit of the Loom, a very familiar brand, I'm sure, to anyone who wears underwear. And uh, they are actually, Fruit of the Loom is actually one of the biggest private sector employers in Honduras, uh, with about uh, 10,000 workers at its factories down there. <clears throat> Russell Athletic is more of a sportswear brand, which uh, produces uh, largely for uh, stores like uh, Sportsnet, uh, uh, Sports Tech, the ones that you might see in malls in Canada but also uh, has a significant uh, university market where they produce university apparel. Okay, now tell us about what is unprecedented about, it, about this agreement and why it's such good news. First, uh, to give it a bit of context, the, uh, in the global apparel industry, one of the biggest problems we face is that uh, workers try to organize unions to protect their interests, to protect their rights. Uh, they almost invariably find themselves getting fired, uh, discriminated against, uh, harassed, abused, sometimes uh, even killed. And even if they are successful in organizing, in organizing a union, often what happens is the, uh, the owners of the factory shut down the factory and move production somewhere else, 
which is fairly easy to do in an apparent because there's not really a lot of capital involved. They can they can shift production practically overnight, and that's what happened here in Honduras when the workers at the Jerseys to Honduras uh, factory tried to organize a union and successfully uh, actually constituted a union at the factory. The uh, owners decided that was time to uh, shut down the whole location and lay off 1,200 workers. What's unusual about this is that those workers didn't give up. They uh, got in touch with international organizations, that uh, labor rights organizations like Michaela Solidarity Network, and said they wanted to fight. And so using the uh, power of uh, the, the almighty dollar, that is, uh, approaching universities that were buying Russell Athletic products by the millions, um, we were able to uh, start a large-scale boycott of Russell Athletic in conjunction with student groups across the United States and Canada. And that brought Russell Athletic to the table. So tell us what's in this agreement. Well, the agreement not only uh, opens a new factory in Honduras, reemploys all the workers that were laid off at the Jersey's to Honduras factory, um, but it also opens uh, the door at all other Fruit of the Loom factories in the country to uh, worker rights training programs done by the union and uh, union uh, position of neutrality by the employer to any kind of union organizing, which in a country like Honduras, where there's quite a uh, prevalent anti-union attitude, this is uh, groundbreaking. In fact, it's groundbreaking anywhere in the apparel industry globally that uh, the company would open its doors to unions with the idea that actually there's uh, an opportunity here for sustainable uh, progress on labor rights rather than uh, just uh, <clears throat> having constant problems with uh, labor rights campaigners like ourselves. Well, let's talk about uh, the pressure that was brought to bear that moved this agreement along. Um, tell us about the international pressure, the struggles the workers themselves launched. Well, the, uh, the key here is that the uh, pressure was multifaceted. So on the one hand, you had uh, students who went to their universities and said, we don't want you to continue licensing Russell Athletic products under our name uh, as long as they're continuing to abuse workers in this way. And most universities were willing to either uh, uh, cancel their contracts, uh, licensing agreements with the company, or tell the company they would uh, do so if the uh, company didn't clean up its act within a certain amount of time. And this was in Canada and the U.S.? That's right. And then further, uh, we went after investors, uh, went after uh, retail retailers which were carrying Russell Athletic products, like sports check stores in Canada, uh, went after their distributors. And one of the things which really broke the camel's back here was uh, MSN, which is part of something called the Fair Labor Association in the States. Uh, that's a multi-stakeholder initiative, which actually includes company uh, uh, members, such as Russell Athletic. We got... Uh, the Fair Labor Association to suspend Russell's membership um, on the condition that it had to negotiate with the trade union to uh, remedy the problems that they had caused. And can you tell us what you think is different about this situation? Why haven't we seen this kind of mobilization before? Well, I think the, uh, the, the catch here is first that the uh, company had substantial university markets, so they did open the door to some immediate uh, pressure points. Um, but also I think it was such a glaring case of a factory being closed just to get rid of the union. Um, now, there were economic reasons too, but uh, th those don't overshadow the fact that there was, uh, um, there was the, the fact that the union was there was a factory in closing this, this uh, facility. So 
I think that really stuck in people's craw, and they saw it and said, you know, we can't allow this to, to go on. We've got to make a stand somewhere. And with the union in Honduras being particularly strong and, and courageous in this fight, I think uh, the women who run that union and the uh, people who uh, surround it are, are quite um, strong in their in their stance on this. I think we were able to put together a good um, team, really, to uh, take on this company. Kevin Thomas, of the, the the director, you're the director of advocacy for the Makia Solidarity Network. Tell us about the other projects that MSN is doing, um, is involved with, and how alert listeners can get in touch with you if they want to help. Well, MSN's goal is to improve the uh, the rights, uh, to improve the uh, respect for rights of women workers worldwide. Uh, we particularly focus on the apparel industry, but often uh, into other uh, globalized industries as well. Uh, our goal, of course, is to, uh, or our belief is that the uh, real change in these industries has to come from the ground up, that uh, workers have to be empowered to organize and, and able to organize in their factories to improve conditions. But that can be matched with international solidarity, and this is a great example of it. Um, we've done work in uh, most of the Americas, in Mexico, Central America, in Asia, the Philippines, uh, China, uh, Indonesia, and I think... Um, Canadians will recognize if they look at the labels on their clothes that their their clothes come from all over the world now, and that means they have an opportunity to also impact worker rights all over the world by taking on those companies when they abuse those rights. So if people are interested in that kind of approach and think that uh, solidarity can be built internationally, then uh, then I do welcome them to come to our website, which is at www.makilasolidarity.org, and that's spelled... M-A-Q-U-I-L-A. And Solidarity, I think your listeners can probably spell pretty well. .org. Well, I've got my no-sweat sneakers on, but I'm not so sure our listeners are interested in my underwear. But, Kevin Thomas, thank you for coming on to Alert Radio this afternoon. We appreciate your commentary. Thanks, Jeff. Kevin Thomas is the Director of Advocacy for the Makia Solidarity Network. We reached him in Toronto. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. We have on the phone with us in his office in Toronto, Murray Klippenstein, lawyer representing the three Ecuadorians suing the Vancouver-based Copper Mesa Mining Corporation in an Ontario courtroom, or hoping to sue the Copper Mesa Mining Corporation in an Ontario courtroom. Mr. Klippenstein, welcome to Alert Radio. Hello, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Now, tell us about Copper Mesa Mining Company. How long have they been in Ecuador? Uh, they've been uh, in Ecuador for a few years now, and uh, they uh, picked up what they thought might be a large copper deposit uh, in the mine in the mountains uh, of uh, Ecuador in the forests uh, near uh, some uh, small villages and an ecological reserve. And uh, they uh, bought the concession uh, secretly, uh, and then. Uh, uh, want to explore it in more detail and uh, hopefully, in their view, uh, have a large, a gigantic open pit mine. And uh, the, uh, the arrival of their uh, exploratory forces uh, has uh, caused an awful lot of conflict and uh, leading to, to violence and death threats, and, and, and that's how uh, we ended up where we are today. 
Well, I understand there were Japanese interests pre- previously in the area, but they left because of trouble with the locals. Why is the community opposed to the copper mining in that area? Uh, the uh, the mining, uh, if it happens, would lead to a gigantic open pit mine, and the area is uh, is, is a gorgeous uh, place. Uh, I've, I've been there and visited with the community, and uh, it's, in, it's in the mountains. It's right, na- right next to a huge ecological reserve with an amazing variety of, of plants and orchids and and birds. It's it's sort of a, it's a cloud forest, so it's it's uh, very humid, uh, although cool. Uh, and the uh, villagers, the campesinos in the little villages, uh, have their their coffee crops and uh, uh, a, a, way, a very uh, Im- important way of life to them. And uh, uh, so th- there'd be uh, uh, villages uh, raised and moved, and and the rivers uh, polluted. And uh, uh, they just said, you know, wait a minute, we don't even need this. Um, and uh, so they said, just please go away. And what else did they do to to uh, try to stop development? Well, they've organized the local referendums uh, in the villages, which uh, have strongly opposed the mining, um, and uh, uh, passed resolutions in what the equivalent of the local municipality saying this is a no mining zone. Uh, and they've they've organized and uh, have hold, uh, held huge demonstrations in uh, in uh, along with their supporters in the uh, capital city and. Uh, when the uh, mining company decided to send in uh, a, a large body of its uh, employees uh, and, and some accompanying security forces, armed men, basically paramilitaries, um, they stretched a, a little train across the one road going through the, the forest and uh, said, uh, you can't come in here, and that resulted in a, uh, an amazing confrontation between uh, villagers um, um, half or most of them were women, and uh, and a bunch of thugs in bulletproof uh, vests with guns and and anti-personnel gas, and uh, all of which was caught in a video. An amazingly uh, uh, fortuitous circumstance, but uh, uh, you know, so the the violence uh, perpetrated by by the, um, the the people hired by the indirectly through some chains of subsidiary corporations by the Canadian mining company is uh, is there to see. So tell us, what are the f- charges against uh, Copper Mesa Mining Company that are being pursued by the individuals you represent? They are suing in uh, Ontario courts, uh, both Copper Mesa Mining Company and the individual directors of the company and the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, because uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange provided, uh, uh, through listing on the stock exchange, the capital that the mining company used um, uh, to go down there to hire these forces, um, and uh, uh, the the legal basis is uh, that uh, the uh, different defendants, the mining company, the directors, and the uh, TSX were negligent and actually caused uh, this uh, harm, these assaults. That uh, those were foreseeable, uh, that they were an unreasonable risk. Uh, and uh, so it's called technically the uh, the tort of negligence, and in a way, it's a very standard, basic principle in in law. Uh, although this is applying it to a somewhat of a new situation, a new situation where it is foreign um, nationals who are suing a Canadian company in Canadian court. So, so yeah. talk about that. Is there a precedent for this sort of thing? I uh, no, basically it's um, it, it quite uh, unusual in a sense. Uh, it's very 
simple and ordinary in the sense that it's using existing rules in a bit of a new way, um, but uh, it's um, addressing a, a terrific problem, which is that uh, uh, companies from Canada who can raise money on the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is the world's largest stock exchange for mining, uh, can send the money abroad, and it just seems to then accountability just vanishes um, because uh, it goes through a chain of subsidiary corporations, and they hire people to do this, and it gets a little shady. And, and then so here's uh, Marcia Ramirez, our client, or Polybio. They they get uh, physically uh, attacked uh, um, by these thugs whose roots of action trace back to. Canada and uh, and yet they can't the money can go down there and do these things but they can't hold it accountable uh, by coming up here there's so many legal technicalities and rules and practicalities uh, what we've uh, done I think is put together some simple rules that say you know what um, the legal system in Canada should uh, respond to this and uh, if, if if this had happened in Canada there would be enormous outrage it would just not be tolerated and there would courts would respond. And we're saying, you know what, it's really the same thing. Well, we understand that uh, back in January of 2008, the Ecuadorian government nullified the company's right to mine in that area. Uh, Can you say what the ownership status is of the copper deposits that lie under the ground? Well, it's a funny situation right now. Uh, Because of the uh, community organizing and the protests, and they had some legal action there, and they said, you don't, you company haven't done the environmental assessment you were supposed to legally, you haven't done the consultation. Uh, the, uh, the government's uh, finally, finally responded and canceled the uh, mining concession, except the company doesn't accept that. They say we still, uh, we still own it. And uh, so uh, it's uh, not as if it's um, going, or the problem's going away. And the other thing is the company then tried to flip its uh, concession, which the government said it didn't know, and they tried to sell it to another company. Um, and so the, the accountability just disappears because of the properties, the, the rights, they're unclear. They can get flipped back and forth between companies down to subsidiaries and who knows. Um, so the, the accountability uh, is, is not there. And, and, and so you know what will happen in the future. We don't know with this concession. They, the company still says it's theirs. The government says no. And I think in these situations, the company the company can often rely on the Canadian government to work behind the scenes diplomatically to support the Canadian investors. So they still hope they'll get it back some way. Well, let's move on to the Canadian government and the bill that uh, is being debated in Parliament, uh, C-300. I believe John McKay, a Liberal MP, is uh, introducing a private member's bill. Can you talk about it? Uh, yes, we can talk a little bit about it. We... Uh, uh, it's a bill based on some corporate social responsibility discussions that have happened in Ottawa for a long time. Uh, there, there was there have been a couple of national roundtables where um, members of, of NGOs and concerned citizens uh, and, and and industry representatives representatives sat down and tried to hammer out some kind of compromise about some kind of accountability mechanism. And those that's that's built into 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 the the bill. Um, and when uh, our clients, Marcia and, uh, and, and uh, another community member, Carlos, came here, we uh, they traveled to, to Ottawa with us, and we met with many folks there, so they were able to have some face-to-face input. Um, whether it'll pass, I don't know. Will it be sufficient? Uh, you know, what's needed? Absolutely not. It's uh, probably a step in the right direction. Uh, 
um, it doesn't really have much enforceability. Um, subject to political uh, manipulation. Um, and so in a way, things like the ordinary legal accountability of the court system, I think, are, are needed. They have a role to play. Um, um, but uh, I think that the, the consideration this is getting in Ottawa is good. It's important. Finally, Murray Klippenstein, where can, where can alert listeners find out more information about this lawsuit? Uh, well, there's a website called uh, Ramirez versus Copper Mesa. That's Ramirez versus Copper Mesa. Uh, you search that on the internet, you can uh, find the information we've posted. Uh, also, there's a major article uh, from just a couple of days ago in the Toronto Star that's on uh, the Star website, just called the Star. And if you uh, search um, Ramirez, uh, you'll find a, a couple of good articles on the lawsuit and on the uh, the Bill C-300 and a little video that they prepared. So it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend folks do that. Well, Murray Klippenstein, you will be representing, hopefully, three Ecuadorians who are going to uh, file charges against the Copper Mesa Mining Company. Thank you very much for joining us here on Alert Radio. Yeah. Oh, by the way, they are filed. They are proceeding. We're already in procedural steps, so it's going. Very, uh, thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The United Nations World Food Summit on Food Security, held in Rome, has concluded and earned widespread condemnation for failing to bring about any commitments from the industrialized world to adequately fund initiatives aimed at ending hunger. While those meetings occurred, a parallel conference took place in Rome, the People's Food Sovereignty Now Civil Society Organization Forum, featuring the voices excluded from the United Nations table. We have one of those voices who was at the Alternative Conference with us now. Ben Paulus is a 22-year-old Mohawk from Six Nations in Ontario. A university student, he is also heavily involved in the Indigenous Environmental Network. We reached him in Ottawa. Welcome to Alert Radio, Ben Paulus. Under whose auspices did you attend the Alternate Conference in Rome? Well, I work with a group called the Indigenous Environmental Network and um, mostly focus on issues of climate change, climate justice, and recently began focusing on issues of food security, something that they've been working on uh, for a while. And so I attended originally um, another conference last year in Rome uh, focused on food security and climate change. And this year uh, they had an even bigger gathering organized around the United Nations World Food Summit and gathering a number of uh, civil society groups, uh, indigenous peoples, um, farmers' representatives, etc., from around the world for about four days um, in a parallel of the United Nations uh, World Food Summit. So they invited me back again, uh, and I was more than happy to go back and represent and work with uh, the Indigenous Farmers Network and other groups that were present at the, at the gathering. Okay, Ben, so you weren't at the official UN Food Summit, but you were at the parallel conference that took place at the same place at the same time. Tell me what happened there. Ours was really a gathering of small-scale food producers, uh, farmers, pastoralists, fisher folk, etc., from around the world. And at the gathering, we basically had 
a number of opportunities together as different caucuses, including Indigenous Caucus, Women's Caucus, Youth Caucus, and Allies Caucus, as well as um, discuss uh, a number of the issues related to food security, food sovereignty, um, thematically, with the final goal of producing um, one final declaration as a outcome of all the peoples, but also different declarations um, from the different caucuses groups as well. And there were a number of sort of uh, side events that different constituencies, different organizations or, or groups uh, held throughout the conference as well. And working with Indigenous uh, peoples especially, we also had a separate mandate to try and um, push for an Indigenous peoples advisory group within the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization um, to sort of oversee some of their activities and policies and the way they're implemented. Now tell me, what is your idea of food security? Well, our, our, our idea of food security actually extends and I think is a little bit more in-depth and actually refers to food sovereignty and really talks about the, the idea of food producers being the ones who decide on food policies and have control over food policies within their countries, uh, nations, peoples, communities, etc. And so the, the context for that is, is really, you know, taking it beyond the idea of, of, you know, countries just having food security, countries just having, you know, enough adequate access to food, but also allowing the food producers of those countries to sort of decide on uh, the food that's produced, the food that they produce, you know, uh, methods of the production, including organic, um, small-scale agriculture, supports for those kind of methods, but also the actual way that they sell it. And so that really deals with alternatives to the traditional industrial um, hypermarket uh, system that we've seen erode traditional forms and really destroy traditional forms of agriculture and, you know, the small-scale farming method here in Canada, but also uh, really trying to expand across the world right now. And so the model is really pushing for food sovereignty as an alternative uh, and something more in-depth than food security. Now tell us, in view of the food crisis, what do you feel needed to happen at the UN food conference that just happened in Rome? Well, the UN Food Conference brought together a lot of countries and traditionally they also have a constituency that, that involves a lot of um, agricultural industry representatives as well, in addition to allowing in you know, a few representatives from civil society groups. And what we've seen from the United Nations summits, and this one is no exception, has been a steady move um, on the sort of uh, impulse of a number of countries around the world, particularly United States, um, towards this, this industrial agricultural model and in the further intensification of this model, you know, very reliant on chemical inputs, for example, um, and really pushing uh, genetically modified uh, food products as well. And so... This is this is the kind of model that they're saying is going to, you know, wipe out hunger around the world when we feel that it's actually been the basis of that model, the basis of, you know, increasingly less control held by farmers and other food producers 
that's really caused some of the basics of the food crisis around the world. Particularly, note that you know n- number of the hungry around the world uh, are actually food producers themselves, and so these are some of the people who have the least access to food, uh, despite the fact that they're the ones who produce um, about seventy-five percent of the food around the world. So it's not a matter of you know simply expanding and, and entrenching the the current model. Um, it's that we feel that you know the United Nations is going in the completely opposite direction. Even though a number of you know their inside reports and inside um, data you know actually agrees with with our position, uh, it's really being on the impetus of a number of countries that they're they're really moving away from that model. Uh, one final question for you, Ben Paulus. Um, you're disappointed then with the results of the UN Food Climate, or sorry, the UN Food Security Conference in Rome. Um, but were you happy with the coinciding conference of the Indigenous People and Civil Society? Yeah, the, the Civil Society Forum and the, the, the also parallel forums with Indigenous Peoples. I think uh, came up with some really strong declarations. Um, Let's hear really about. Pre- tell us about those. Me? Yes, well, tell us about those that uh, the declarations that that came from that, those conferences. Well, basically, they're put together, um, really pushing for what uh, Indigenous communities, particularly in, in the Indigenous People Summit, recognize as being some of the biggest challenges to their food security. And particularly, uh, in, that comes down to a lot of the issues of access to land, access to traditional territories and traditional resources and the protection of, uh, indigenous people's rights, uh, indigenous people's self-determination, uh, the kind of things that they have lost, uh, in many cases as a direct result of, you know, colonial practices, colonial governments. Um, being imposed in their territory. And so there's a direct recognition of that and a direct number of, you know, recommendations that, um, basically would have to change to guarantee, um, food sovereignty and food security for indigenous communities around the world. And the, the civil society declaration is, uh, along the same lines, um, but pushing for, you know, broader policies that would respect the, the rights, um, of small scale food producers. Um, to their own productions and, and pushing for their own means of uh, sovereignty as well. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio today, Ben Paulus. We will uh, continue to follow the world food crisis. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik, and this week, a completely different show than we've done before. In the last 10 years, Canada has seen the emergence of a whole great group of women songwriters, and we thought today's show would be about that phenomena. So here to start is Tana Slimman, originally from southern Manitoba, and now from Guelph, Ontario, with her song, Underground Railroad. Start the 
That was Tannis Slimmon with Underground Railroad. Uh, among the people who work in the folk music world in Canada is a, is a woman named Kara Luft. Her dad is Barry Luft from Calgary, Alberta, who many years ago put out an amazing, amazing album of train songs. And so it's not surprising that the first song on Kara's album is about a, about a train. Uh, here, here's Kara Luft with There's a Train. Get on board and look around Cause I've been stuck in this old town Where everyone's the same Got my ticket out of here And I won't be back again How could you tell me that you didn't think I tried How could I stay here when it's burning me alive I can't leave here without crying
I've had my pirate days and my bandit ways, as good as any man. And under gypsy skies, let my hair tumble down to lie with the very best of them. In the summers of fires, in the summers outrageous, in the summers of dying for the fun, in the summers starry nights bursting into desires, all the summers, all the price for tasting freedom. Not content to be the waiting, weeping one. Scaled the walls, drank all the wine, and danced until I knew divine the place where I belong. In the summers of fires, in the Summers outrageous in the summers of dying for the fun. In the summers, starry nights bursting into desires. All the summers, all the price for tasting. title song by Pirate Days. This past weekend, Marianne was up for National Folk Music Award. And before that, Kara Luft with There is a Train. 
One of the neatest people I've met in the last bunch of years is Annabelle Chavostik. I met her at the OCFF conference in Guelph a bunch of years ago, and uh, she played great fiddle. And then she started to sing, and I discovered she was a great writer. She spent a few years with the Whalen Jennies kicking around Canada and the world, and then she decided to go out on her own and, and do her own solo career. And here she is with The Sioux.
Chavostik with her song The Sioux. This is Music is the Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik and I'll see you next week. That is it for Alert Radio for November 26, 2009. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I hope that you will check us out again next week. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind Alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension Magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out CanadianDimension.com.